This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. With me now is Zhou Qin, one of our political economy editors here at the South China Morning Post. Hi, Xin. Hi. Um, I understand you have a unique uh, connection to Louis Cha, uh, the very famous, some would say the most famous Chinese author. It's a lifelong journey. Uh, perhaps you could start with your hometown, because I understand you're from the same place as Louis Cha. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that place is called Hainin. Uh, it's a very small town in Zhejiang province. And Louis Cha left uh, hometown at quite early age, and he uh, moved into Hong Kong. But in his first famous Kung Fu novel, The Book and the Sword, he took the story from uh, a folk tale in a hometown that has been lasting for 200 years. That is saying, according to the plot, uh, one of the famous emperors in Chinese history, Qianlong, was actually born in a normal family, in a local official's family in Hainin. And the whole book, uh, The Book and the Sword, is based upon that plot. So it gives me a lot of like interest because every uh, lots of places, place names in the book I know from my childhood. So I would like to explore you know, how Louis Cha has uh, try to present these uh, places in a fascinating story. Cha seemed to connect with readers all over the Chinese-speaking, Chinese-reading world. What do you think were some of the points that appealed to people? Why did he make such a strong connection? Okay, first of all, uh, Louis Cha's um, books are deeply rooted in Chinese culture, which makes it very natural for every uh, Chinese person who is brought up in this uh, culture background, which is also making it extremely difficult to translate it to the non-Chinese community. Uh, even the names, the titles of the books are really difficult to, to, to translate. For instance, uh, the, the, the Hero of Kando. And the Kando, why, why not Ego? Why Kando? It's a, it's a huge debate on uh, Chinese internet. And the thing about uh, Louis Charles' novels is that uh, it has a deep nationalistic uh, tone in it. And his famous line that if you want to be a Chinese hero, you should care for your country and for the people. And that's basically the biggest theme of his book. And when he talked about, uh, when he wrote about these uh, legends, these heroes, they're all about like sacrificing themselves for sake of the country, for sake of others. So what makes a hero is like constant theme throughout his 15 novels. I think the biggest or possibly the, uh, you know, the, the greatest or the most impressive point is that it teaches the uh, Chinese that uh, being an individual, you should, you should make more efforts for this country and for others. And I think that's, that's really stand out. And it's uh, echoed with the uh, 1970s, later 1970s, 1980s, very closely, because by that time, both in Hong Kong and in China, uh, there's a strong nationalistic sentiment. And, you know, uh, everyone should contribute to the rise of the Chinese nation, something like that. Uh, so his book was almost instantly popular in mainland China. It's read by everyone who is literate, basically. My father read it. I, I, I read it. And all my friends read it. When his books are... Uh, Introduced into China, I think the official copy sold was like 300 uh, million copies. But the pirate version should be several times of that because I remember the first one I, 
I have to read is a pirate copy. It's <laughs> it's not a it's not an official copy, but it is so it is so popular. Uh, I will give you one example because um, in early nineteen nineties, his book is still regarded as something like not very authentic or not very firmly uh, in line with uh, communist dogma in the uh, school. So uh, it's kind of underground. And one book has basically to pass through every hand in this classroom. So usually when, when it's your turn to read it, you, you, you have like three days to read it, you know, with the, with the cover already gone and with the bottom already gone. And it's the only time you have to read it. You, you read it nonstop. So which means the, the teacher is giving lectures uh, in the classroom, but you hide your hide your book and the desk and read it. And in the boarding schools, uh, my, my middle school is boarding school, nine o'clock uh, lights out, everyone should go to bed. And after the after tutor, after the conductor left the uh, dormitory, you know, people just turn on the torch and read it. And, and, and you know, that's, that's why I'm gla- wearing glasses these days, <laughs> because I uh, read deep into nights, because you only have like two or three days to finish it, because your friend is waiting eagerly for that. It's interesting to hear you say Cha has this very broad appeal, uh, people from all ages and backgrounds within China. And it, it's also interesting uh, to note that Cha wrote not just in fiction, but as a journalist, as an author. Could you describe a bit about his versatility, uh, the way he was able to move away from just writing works of fiction into being something of a social commentator? Yeah. Okay. Uh, for Louis Charles, this is a really a fascinating point because uh, as a, a novelist, you know, he was, uh, of course, the top level. And uh, But on the other hand, apart from his hat of the greatest novelist in Chinese history, he was also a successful uh, newspaper editor and a newspaper manager. And of course, his uh, journalistic experience are not uh, as well known as his uh, uh, novelist uh, in the Chinese community. But I have studied his uh, early history of uh, how he uh, founded the Mingbao uh, in Hong Kong and how he turned this um, newspaper into one of the leading uh, voices for the Chinese community. And I think an important thing for that, or important reason behind this, is that uh, Louis Chai is possibly one of the uh, outstanding members of the last generation of the Chinese intellectuals. He was educated uh, in his childhood in a very traditional way, you know, reading all these uh, Confucius textbooks, classics. And then he had the chance of uh, studying modern science and then relocated to Hong Kong. And then he has access to the uh, Western uh, values and ideas and new ways of how, how to uh, have his own narratives and his ideas. So uh, it is a very unique combination. And only uh, time and uh, history uh, can make this. So so if he was in Beijing, imagine if he was in Beijing, uh, he will be, uh, uh, he attempted to be a diplomat for the new republic, but failed. But imagine if he was uh, uh, su- succeeded in getting the foreign ministry of the People's Republic of China. Then we will never have a Mingbao. We will never have such great uh, Kung Fu novels. Only in Hong Kong, and only by himself, that he can be so successful in both uh, in terms of writing Kung Fu novels and running this newspaper. Uh, uh, the reason for he funded the uh, Mingbao is also very interesting because at the beginning he was why he moved to Hong Kong because he worked for Tai Kung Pao. Uh, you know, the Tai Kung Pao is a great newspaper during the uh, 1940s, 1930s. 
But after the Communist Party took over, it became a leftist uh, voice. Uh, it basically, it's a propaganda tool for uh, the ruling Communist Party. And he was there uh, writing for the uh, newspaper, uh, being a journalist, uh, for a few years. And then he was increased, increasingly fed up by this uh, um, you know, communist narrative. And one big thing to make this Mingbao uh, mainstream newspaper instead of just a tabloid is the coverage of the uh, mainland refugees in the 1960s. Because by that time, uh, people are starving on the mainland and hundreds of thousands of people are trying to cross the border to Hong Kong just to live on to survive. And by that time, you know, how to cover this story is an important uh, test uh, for all the, all the, all the uh, media in Hong Kong. I think the Shani Morning Post at that time, they, they have to uh, keep a balance between the official line because on one hand, you have to follow the government, uh, which is the British government, uh, the colony government law that these people are illegal immigrants. But on the other hand, you know, from a people's consciousness, these are the these are these are people. If you kick them back, they will be starving. They will be they will be uh, they'll be dead. So it's a very uh, big debate at that time in the nineteen sixties. And I think Louis Chan made a right call that uh, Hong Kong people should help these mainland Chinese people. And he, he wrote numerous uh, editorials, and he sent journalists to the border to cover the uh, huge human tragedies. And it made him, him know, and it made Ming Pao a respected newspaper. Uh, because from his point of view, uh, it is not necessary for Hong Kong to help these mainland refugees, but it is also good for Hong Kong's future of getting these people in. And that's that's one thing that uh, make Ming Bao a voice for the middle class of the uh, uh, Hong Kong society. And then the second uh, point, I think, is about uh, the riots. Uh, in, in the late 1960s, you know, the culture of Russia in China and the leftists uh, organized lots of strikes and even riots in Hong Kong. And by that time, it is also a test uh, for the uh, Hong Kong local intellectuals, you know, shy, should they follow blindly to the uh, communist line that these workers are patriots and, you know, they are doing the right thing, rising against the empires, British empires in Hong Kong? Or they should, you know, really ask themselves critically, are these people really doing good things for Hong Kong or just trying, uh, creating trouble? Again, uh, Rhys Chua has made the right call and he persuaded the people that, you know, the stability uh, and the prosperity of Hong Kong is more important than these kind of empty ideologies. And he proved the right. So he won lots of, lots of uh, uh, middle-class readers. Jin, another interesting point in the remarkable career of Louis Cha was when China entered the nuclear age. I wonder if you could elaborate on what he had to say about that and what its implications were for the country. Okay. Uh, yes, that's a very uh, uh, interesting case because at that time, uh, the famous Chinese Marshal Chen Yi, who fought, you know, with Mao Zedong to uh, found the New People's Republic, said famously or infamously that we would rather to uh, sell uh, our last pant to raise money uh, for the nuclear for our own nuclear weapon. And Louis Cha uh, read this, and then he wrote a uh, famous editorial on the front page of Ming Bao saying, you know, it is wrong uh, to that approach uh, because uh, pants, which equals, of course, daily necessities, people's living, are more important uh, than nuclear, nuclear power. And interestingly, 
you know, his point of view was not totally rejected by Beijing. In fact, part of his view was taken by Marshal Chen Yi. So uh, Marshal Chen later changed his line. He said, uh, we need both pants and our own nuclear weapons. And, you know, his, that's why his, his editorials become so influential because uh, people know that he was writing from a, a standpoint of independent Chinese intellectual. And he was not uh, blindly criticizing Beijing or criticizing its policies. He is really thinking about the future of this country. How should China go forward? And this is why you know, he has so, uh, so many followers, including Deng Xiaoping. And so in the early 1980s, when he was introduced to Beijing to uh, meet Deng Xiaoping, the first, um, according to the records, Deng Xiaoping saw Louis Cha and said, uh, I knew you already. I read your books and I read your editorials. And when they sit down together, and Deng Xiaoping even lights a cigarette for Mr. Cha. And Mr. Cha was so uh, moved and touched, you know, Deng Xiaoping was then the paramount leader of, uh, of China, but he showed kind of respect and humiliation. And another interesting thing to mention with Cha, uh, his history with the uh, Chinese government, with always the Chinese Communist Party, is also very interesting. We should remember that Louis Cha is from a, a very noble family in Hainan. His Cha family, or in uh, Mandarin Jia, uh, has history of like 800 years. And this family was known for producing the best scholars in China and the ministers. And Emperor Kangxi wrote a, 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 a line for this family saying, you know, it is one of the greatest families in the last 1,000 years. And it is also one of the uh, biggest house names uh, south of the Yangtze, Yangtze River. So you, you can see like, uh, they are rich, they are powerful, and they have lots of family members. Both are, um, their poems are, are, are circulated widely, and they are widely respected. But when the Communist Party uh, coming, this uh, this family was regarded as a, a landlord family. By that time, can be severely punished because it's an enemy of the uh, farmers. So Louis Cha's own father was sentenced to death. Uh, you know, killed, uh, shot in the head, bullet in the head, on, on the ground of the local primary school, which was actually funded and built up uh, by Charles' father. And by that time, uh, Louis Charles was in Hong Kong. And in one essay, he recalled that moment. He said he cried three days and nights because his father was killed in mainland China and he cannot go back. And this anecdote was uh, mentioned 30 years later in, the, in his meeting with Deng Xiaoping. And uh, Deng Xiaoping said, you know, I know, you know, the tragedy of uh, your family and uh, almost saying, uh, uh, trying to apologize. And then Louis Cha said, you know, uh, we cannot bring the dead people to life. Let's move on and looking forward. So it's, it's very, very fascinating about how Louis Cha is trying to um, reconcile with, with, with this, this country saying, you know, how, how, should, how should we move forward together? And, you know, he, has, he, has, he, he, could, he could seek revenge. You know, he could be the enemy of the Communist Party for for, for whole, whole of his life. But he chose like, okay, maybe I should use my knowledge, you know, to provide guidance, to provide advice to the, to the leadership. And that's what he did. Cha has gained fame well beyond 
the world of Chinese readers uh, exclusively. In fact, we know increasingly many are translating his works. Uh, for those who may not be super familiar with yeah. all of that he's written about, what would you say are some of the signature works or maybe best ways to get introduced to the themes that Louis Cha wrote so knowledgeably about? Mm. Uh, as I said earlier, it's very difficult to translate Louis Cha's books into another culture because almost every line like, contains certain uh, culture implications. Uh, people say like uh, Louis Cha is, uh, uh, you know, he writes Lord of Rings in Chinese sense, but it's more than Lord of Rings. It's almost like the Lord of Rings, Game of Thrones, Narnia, everything combined, you know, it's more than that. For now available uh, English translations, I think uh, Oxford uh, Press has recently published the Candle of Hero, and that's so far, according to reviews, that's the best ever available. So uh, if anyone wants to read that, I think they should by that one, newly published last year. And before that, some people have tried to uh, translate that by very knowledgeable and uh, respected uh, linguists, uh, journalists, editors. One book is uh, uh, translated by Graham Enshaw. Uh, the Book and the Sword is published in 2004, I think, by uh, Oxford University Press. Uh, I read both the uh, English and the um, Chinese version, and I make a comparison. And I must say the translated version uh, contains only 60% of what can be about uh, uh, the, the Chinese version. Because there, there are many, many poems and there are many idioms that you need a uh, certain uh, knowledge of the Chinese uh, culture and the historical background to understand this. For instance, uh, the Book in the Sword is a, is a very sick book. And every chapter is uh, opened uh, with, a, with a poem. And this poem uh, contains lots of implications and plots and uh, um, the meanings of this chapter. And it's very difficult to deliver that in another language. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a, a herring in this book in the sword who is from uh, Xinjiang. And her address is always like uh, uh, with wearing a yellow silk shirt and uh, with a, a green feather on her hat. Um, but the, you know, the, maybe in Chinese they have like hundreds of ways to present this di different, uh, the dress in different occasions and circumstances. But in English, you can only say like, oh, uh, the girl in yellow shirt showed up again. So it reduces the flavor a, a, a lot if uh, translating to another language. Shin, is it true that if you add up all the characters and all these books that Cha has written, that taken together, they create a poem? Yes. Uh, um, he wrote 15 uh, novels, Kung Fu novels in total. And 14 of them, uh, if you uh, take the first character, it, it, it forms a poem. It's uh, uh, It's almost every uh, uh, you know, Louis Cha fan where can recite. And this, is, this in itself is a very beautiful poem. It means, you know, um, in a, in, a, in a very snowy mountains, uh, and you use your own bow and try to hunt the uh, holy deer. And then back home, there was a, uh, a great, uh, there was a great warrior uh, who is uh, um, leaning against a, a green door and smiling at you. It's 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 very imaginative, but yes, it's, a, it's a, mm -hmm. if you 
connect all the novels together. It's a very, very uh, beautiful poem itself. Well, Shin, you've given us a lot of uh, good material and incentive to read about the works of Louis Cha. Mm. Uh, I think we'll leave it there and get back to the newsroom. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to the South China Morning Post podcast.